What are you doing? What? Who are you? <laughs> God, shut up. I'm just trying to tell you about this building. Okay, stop with the tour guide mode for a second. I'm not in a mode. You said this is one of your favorite buildings. It is. Why? It's one of the first modernist banks in the United States. No, no, that can't be it. Do you like this building intellectually because of all the facts? No. I'm also moved by it. Yes. Yes, tell me about that. What moves you? I thought you hated architecture. Yeah, I do. But I'm interested in what moves you, particularly about a building. Hello there, and welcome to a very special episode of Pivotal Film. Right, is this, is this the episode where we tell kids not to do drugs? Or Will Smith will come out and go, why doesn't he love me, man? Yep. You know, the very special episodes? You ever you ever hear about those? Like the one where Carlton oh, yeah, yeah, I uh, like yeah, yeah. bought the gun or something like that. Or like Family Matters where Urkel um, tried bought the gun. to you know, fight the bully using uh, meth. No. About the one uh, saved by the bell where Zach tried to turn, like, his women friends into, like, like kind of prostitutes by having them, like, talk to guys and, like, pretend to like guys and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a Zach, lot of episodes of Saved by the Bell. Zach Morris was a real piece of shit. He was shit. not a good guy. Rethought. Um, it's been a few weeks since we've talked to you fellas mm-hmm. because Tom's child... Had a birthday. And me. I have a birthday. And Tom has a birthday upcoming still, right? Thursday, yeah. Thursday. It's going to be a 78 years old. 78 years young, Mario. 78 years and young. And I feel every minute of that. No, I'm sure. So. Um, but me and Tom both saw the film Climax. Yes, we did. From Gaspar No. If you couldn't dance, what would you do? Mmm. Um, suicide? Uh, it is his newest feature. Um, not his oldest feature, as you would be bound to believe. I'm just passing on time until I could say that it is his fifth feature, mm. which was as I was doing to look up. Um, <laughs> his fifth feature, his first since 2015's Love, which was met with middling reviews what is 3d his 3d erotic just relationship movie just you know if you ever need to see a 3d cum shot gaspard noel's love is the movie for you and after um two very divisive but cult status and well loved by some circles of critics and irreversible and uh the three hour long enter the void Mm -hmm. his newest film climax is Maybe a shortest film. It's it's really it's like an hour really and tight. thirty two minutes, thirty one minutes. Yeah, it's a, like an hour and thirty six. Um, it is the story of a group of dancers, dance troupe, dance, dance troupe, dance, dance troupe. Um, 
who during a late night party slash rehearsal mm-hmm. inside of a abandoned school um, happened to be dosed with a tremendous amount of LSD in their punch. And the night spirals out of control. Instantaneously. To <laughs> incest and rape and suicide, sexual assault, abuse of various forms. Uh, and once again, we get Gaspar Noe's uh, opinion on the state of, of man, possibly Meh. in general. Maybe. I, it's it's one of I was gonna send you a homework assignment today, and I was gonna say oh, we boy. each we each have to come up with a metaphor for what this movie is like about. Besides, hmm, nothing. I yeah, don't know. no, it's it's definitely for me sort of a nothing film beneath the surface. Um, visually. Uh, it's it's nice. It's really pleasant to look at in many times. It's shot very well. It's it's technically very sound. Um, the choreography by oh boy, I should have this up. Oh, I like um, oh boy's choreography. The choreography is just is fantastic, and I, I think some of the choreography and some of the dance sequences, especially those single cut dance sequences, is pretty well done. Compared to what? I don't know. It just is visually nice looking. I don't. I, I didn't. I didn't think so. But that's. Or, I mean, I feel like we're going to just agree on most aspects of this movie. Um, well, let's let's hear let's hear your takes on a lot. Well, just think it's. I mean, I think it's stupid. I think it's a stupid movie, and not even because I felt like it was. Um, I kept waiting for it to be evil, like to transfer into like, oh, this movie is evil, um, which I think he wanted us to by like the sh- mere presence of a child. Um, just kind of throughout the whole thing, screaming in a in a electrical closet because his mother realizes that this whole party is dosed, so she locks him in there to protect him from everybody. Um, and he's screaming through the whole movie, um, but it doesn't. It just gets sillier and sillier and sillier until the camera flips upside down, and then you can't even really see what's happening. You can't even tell what's happening anymore. And then I'm not sure if um, Nina McNeely did the uh, choreography in this. Well, Nina McNeely, you did something. Here's what I'll say about the choreography that I appreciate is that everyone uh, had a different kind of style um, that sort of matched uh, their personality somewhat. Um, or, and I'm assuming that was the intention, was to kind of give everyone like a trademark dance presence. Um, and it does a... a- decent job of conveying the slight descent like the 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 way that that kind of like second major dance sequence kind of like slowly descends into chaos is is interesting to look at Mm -hmm. um but yeah no this this is i mean this is a nothing movie i mean it's most critically i think well received like in terms of mass appeal um which is makes sense because it's super fucking boring. Well, it's uh, just, but it's. I think the probably the reason for that is that its intentions are fairly clear. Yeah. From the beginning, like, and I think so. That's one of the things that I I did like about it. Like the one thing I liked about it is that I didn't think the I thought the opening, 
like interview things in front of the you know with the TV and all the DVDs on the side was funny um, because it essentially tells you if you like you look through all of those DVDs you can kind of and you put all of those movies together you can probably get something that looks like this you yeah I mean? exactly it's it's a nice it's little like point. like nice little like what inspired kind of the film yeah at least on a visual I, mean, I, know, I like i like the fact that suspiria is on the like the bottom right corner just like sitting there because it, it's you know it goes it's dancing it's european it's um got the you know a lot the, of reds the reds and stuff um the inner you know the interviews i get it i understand why they're doing um that initial dance sequence and then like those like conversations afterwards i thought really set up the aesthetic really well. Yeah, and I, I think that opening 20 minutes is great and kind of descends into just well, and it's, kind of spinning its wheels. It's a movie that spins its wheels, even though it's considered like a descend into madness, but it doesn't really do anything mean, for me because that, that first, I think that opening establishing of the characters is the most interesting. Um, you know, I really liked, I don't, probably, you're probably going to disagree, I really like Sofia Batella in it, but how, in that, but mostly because of that beginning, how seamlessly she was able to like float between English and French and kind of like convey a different emotion in, in each of the kind of like interactions, mm-hmm. um, which you don't really see quite often in, in terms of there, there's not like a real stiltedness to it. And, and like there's naturalism early on was nice. Yeah. And, and, but once it becomes like, it's an LSD trip and a descent into like a question of man and a question of what, not even what it is to be man. That's not, that's not what that's it is. That's not what it's <laughs> uh, uh, the, the descent just into the depravity of well, what well, people so, can be. I mean, here's it, a, it comes dull. And my question would be: I mean, I, I, part of me wish I cared more about this movie than I could have. I, I would have done something like make a list of all of like the depraved acts that we see after kind of like the LSD hits, and that includes um, throwing the guy that didn't drink that everyone knows didn't drink out into a snowstorm, and then um, a woman kicking, kneeing a pregnant woman in the guts, and then uh, the whole troop badgering her to cut herself and to end her pregnancy um to someone drawing you know including and up to a guy drawing a swastika on a guy's head with lipstick or you know people just awkwardly cradling each other in their arms or dragging someone else into a bedroom and you know assaulting them um it actually seems like it gets less depraved as the movie goes on it becomes like the incest. I guess is supposed to be the incest, and then her, and then that one dancer dragging Sarah away, and then like, you know, the kind of the upside down red scenes where it's just kind of madness. I think are supposed. That's the end of the movie. That's and it, to me, it kind of the 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 title climax seemed awkward because their movie really had no climax. It kind of almost the, like the rising action got to a point, and then it just kind of kept falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. Because they, I didn't care about the incest. Like once they they locked that kid in that room and she couldn't find the key, and was crawling around on the floor like looking for it. Like I didn't really didn't really bother me. On accident. Yeah, it didn't really bother me that they, um, that you know the brother and sister were fucking well, each other, and it didn't really bother me that they killed that guy, and it didn't really bother me that like. You know, whatever her name was, you know, got dragged into that room by that one American girl or the girl that spoke English. Well, one of the two girls that spoke English. Like that stuff didn't bother me. Why do I care about that? That girl cut her face for no reason because we were yelling at her. Like that seems like the most significant. And that one girl got burst into flames. Yeah. Why would I care about this? It's it's a it's a consistent problem, kind of, with Gaspar Noel's storytelling in that he doesn't 
really, it seems, know how to build a narrative that reaches any sort of crescendo. There, there's, there's never really a point where you could see a, a climax in his films or any sort of inherent denouement or anything. Not which you don't need a necessary denouement, but there's, there's no sense of reaching somewhere. I guess Irreversible somewhat does that. You know, kind of has this wonky. Yeah, choreo- but it's uh, it's quite a lot of uh, as it's wonky chronology, but. Like Enter the Void tapers out real early, and it's just a garbage film. Me and you are both not Gaspar Noel people. Um, no, I, I like he's. Um, I like Irreversible. I think Irreversible is a good. I think Irreversible done. works the best. Well done, yeah. Because the chronology gimmick uh, does um, suggest a deeper meaning about. I still haven't seen I Stand Alone, or I haven't seen I Stand Alone either. But like just reading about it, it seems like the only movie he's made that has an idea that isn't. Like a cinematic one, mm-hmm. like you know what I want to do with my camera. I want to I want to make a whole movie because I want to do this with a camera. I want to make a whole movie because I want to do this with the, the timeline. I want to make a whole movie because I want. I hear three D is awesome right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or yeah, I'll make a sex movie in three D. That'll be that's a good idea for a movie, right? Everyone should you know praise me to the death because I made this movie. Um, I said that awkwardly, but that doesn't make any difference. I'm thinking of other stuff. Um. But yeah, and I think he always thinks that stuff is going to be way more subversive than it ends up being. Well, there's, this is kind of an interesting conversation we had. And it's like, you know, a lot of what we talk about in some degree is, is subversive or transgressive films. And you read a lot of like his, I think it was a Slash film um, interview he had where he talks about trying to always be transgressive and, and pushing the envelope and, you know, you know do, doing the things that kind of, invoke some sort of emotion and uh-huh. we talked about how you know you compare him to somebody else who's really kind of seen as transgressive in a lot of ways Lars von Trier mm-hmm. um, or even to a much less degree somebody like Darren Aronofsky or your um, worst Lanthimos like now also is Lanthimos, kind of yeah. operating in that same uh, and we talked like I talked about this over text about how like Darren Aronofsky or, or somebody of those stripes is kind of um you know, the, tr- the troubled or conflicted intellectual. Like, they have mm-hmm. something to say because they, they don't know how to say it. something that's kind of spewing through their mind. Um, and they don't really know how to articulate it, so they just kind of put something on screen that might be flawed or, you know, but it does a lot of things and it kind of asks a lot of thoughtful questions. Um, with but, with images also, though. Like, I want to Yeah, exactly. Aaron, all, all three of these people are, are talented filmmakers in terms of having some sort of visual palette. Right. Like, he, there's no denying that Gaspar Noe knows, knows how to frame or shoot a scene or light it and, ha- like, has the people around him who could light a shot. And the energy's good. Like, yeah. he knows how to work with, it's like... very kinetic. Everything yeah. he does is super kinetic. I mean, people still talk about both, like, the rape scene and the, you know, the, the fire extinguisher scene in Irreversible. People yeah, still yeah. talk about the early visual palette when, you know, the guy's on DMT. Um in Enter the Void and kind of floating over the city. So, yeah, he has that. Uh, but, you know, Darren Aronofsky, like, has this kind of intellectualism to him. He kind of has yeah, this, yeah, like, yeah. trying to work out the demons of his thought process. Lars von Trier is definitely just an emotional mess. We've always talked about how it takes him weeks on end sometimes to shoot a film because he can't get out of bed. Uh-huh. And he's somebody that's, like, can't really discuss what he's emotionally, the emotional aspect of what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. And Gaspar Noel, at least I said this to you, kind of feels like that guy that was really praised early on mm-hmm. as, you know, the undergrad sort of thing and kind of just keeps making that same movie and really doing nothing. And you get that sense because he said something like the two most, ex- like 
when somebody asked him the plot of Climax when it was getting released at Cannes, he was, it was something to the effects of the most, you know, the two greatest things in life that one can experience are birth and death. And he's just like, I just said that it's kind of like nonsense. And but then it ended up on DVD covers. And it's like, it's just, he comes off as just a real arrogant douche. And his films kind of sp- like speak to that in mm. the sense that they're trying. He is much trying to very do hard. Something. Yeah. And when he's, he's trying so much to do something that there's nothing that feels like it's really being said or nothing that it doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't feel like has already been said with irreversible, you know, especially, or it's really just irreversible. Well, I mean, so it's, it's funny because, um, I don't know. I think it's an easy comparison to make of this movie is something like Suspiria. Where the whole movie ends with up uh, like some upside down crane shots in in deep red, you know what I mean? Like those were the that's where those movies end. talking about the Luco Guadagnino, like the the most recent one, um, which is a bummer for Gaspar No because like I doubt that he knew that he, someone else was going to make a dance movie that like had that's worked in the better. same color palette. And I'm that not a even better sh- filmmaker I'm was going to make sure it. that it, it's it's. It's weird. It's definitely weirder. And it definitely steers deeper into the weirdness. But it's the after the weirdness part that I think Guadagnino does better in the sense that he leans into it still being weird. Where I think Gaspar Noe thinks it's totally okay for him to just show a title card that says, what is it, Death is Extraordinary or Death Feels Extraordinary? Um, And then just show all the people, like, show the aftermath of this event with everyone lying on the ground and not and kind of copping out and sh- not showing like, where does anybody go from here? I mean, cause eh, this one night literally ruined everybody's life. Um, I know it's supposed to be based on like a sort of event that happened, I guess in 1996, but as I mean, is that what happened to all these people? I mean, it, it, this felt like, like almost like a Vietnam flick where there's just going to be trauma forever like because of this horribly tortured event that like that happened um and i think it's we, it's just it's just just strange and it's inconsistent and it's and it has to the, your point von trier and aronofsky and lanthimos to an, uh, to a degree also are coming at these with an with an, a clear idea of something they want to do whether or not they always succeed at accomplishing that they're coming to it with ideas it doesn't seem like gasparno had any idea here it just seemed like he was like, I'm going to make a dance movie and it's going to be crazy. And then and then I'll just put a bunch of title cards that are supposed to be really profound. And then people will find it profound. The thing, right? the thing that strikes me is, is Gaspar Noel is kind of comparable to um, Harmony Corinne. But Harmony Corinne, like in terms of like their He doesn't take stuff, himself so seriously. Har- exactly. Harmony Corinne's fun and kind of just like leans into the absurdity of the worlds he's created. Right. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not the biggest fan of Spring Breakers, um, but like it still has a certain goofiness to it, a certain levity to it in in the world it creates. And this is a movie that, and, and like Enter the Void, especially. Well, um, that's just yeah. Like are silly. Like like they reach a point where they're ridiculous. They try to be so transgressive. They try to be so Richard Kern esque. Well, like, that they you know, there, there's like there, there's, there's they no, become a joke. Are they just become dull? Like there's never been a movie made about a drug dealer. Like, come on, man. Like, if you want to be really transgressive here, like, do something actually transgressive. And if the point of the movie you're making is just to, because you have this idea for, like, a, a camera 
you know, a, a, ca- a shot or a camera movement and, or, and how, you know, the idea of the soul leaving the body and what that might look like and all this other stuff. You don't need these cliched, these cliched versions of like a transgressive lifestyle or a transgressive idea. Like you don't need it. And it just makes his movies, for me, seem really silly. Like, so you go, like, you get through a certain point of Enter the Void, and you're just like, I don't care. Who fucking cares? <laughs> Who gives a shit anymore? Yeah, especially when he comes out and says, like, oh, no, I, you know, all this is just a man on DMT. And, like, he kind of, like... Why? Who cares? He just, like, kind of lowers... I don't, I don't want to say the, the, the any sort of interest or anything a viewer can take from it, because, once again, I'm never a believer of the artist defines... Uh, the artist, I think, can define the work, but it's just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, you're, when you don't present any of that on the screen, then you go, ha, 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 no, just kidding, this is what I meant, actually. It's just like, well, then you're not really a good enough filmmaker, because right. you didn't show any of that. Well, he's asking the viewer to do a lot of work. And if you're and it's not even a lot do- of... No, a lot of work, it's like asking the viewer to finish, like halfway finish a Mad Lib and then go like, okay. But I mean, even like something like Climax, like even though Climax is kind of fun in parts to watch because of the way the camera moves and some of like the, the, the framing and stuff like that, the guy that's whose body keeps like transforming itself, like, and I think he's breaking parts of his body like while he's dancing at the end of the movie is a really interesting idea and that fact that he's just kind of in the background in a lot of shots and everything looks different now. Um... He is. It's. It's still a difficult movie to watch, because there's no story. There's no characters that you know really well or like, or or like really dislike. Um, it's just a kind of, you know, it's almost like a stage play, and you're just kind of there. You're just kind of sitting there watching it like kind of trying to make sense of what you're seeing and like the same thing happens in enter the void in the sense that like you're just trying to make sense of how this is how this works and what's going on and who is this person and like are we in the past or are we in the you know where are we in the timeline um but if you're gonna make someone work that hard like you got to make something that like i care about yeah make and i don't give and like i don't give a kids you know make something actually demand something like demand some sort of plot process or make house that jack built or make you know breaking the waves make something worthwhile that presents a coherent narrative story well i don't even want to but then as then as not even necessarily a negative story but at least something that is full something that is a package unto itself that 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 is that is a product well it doesn't need to be coherent it just needs to be a narrative it doesn't and need to, to kind of like ride the rails for ninety minutes, one hundred and eighty minutes. What his films do? His yeah. films just ride the rails. Well, they're safe. Like, they're super safe. This is. We'll talk about this more later like after Avengers come out. But I saw Captain Marvel today, and I think it's funny. The, these movies have nothing to do with each other, but I think it's funny in the sense that I can enjoy something that is not really very. It's not a great movie, Captain Marvel. But it has that big twist that the bad guys aren't really the bad guys. Yeah, that's a that's a popular twist now with Marvel movies. Um, is that really a popular twist? Yeah, because it's Ant Man and the Wasp is that exact uh, same thing. Um, you know, Civil War is kind of like that. You know, where you're just kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know. Like it's, I'm just picking a side of good guys. Who's right and who's wrong? It doesn't really matter. They're all good guys. Um, the point is that it's not a great movie, but it's not pretending to be a great movie. So I can watch it and be like, that's stupid, but that's awesome. 
Okay. Yeah, it's, I it's enjoyed very, myself. This Captain is, Marvel was very. I watched it earlier, by the way. It's very. Oh, okay. It's very whelming, which is not fine. Yeah. It's a very whelming movie. But this movie is coming. It's presented to you as I am great. I am a great movie. I am a. I no. I'm, I'm not a great movie. I am a film. I am a work of art. And yeah, it is a work of art, but it's a work of art that stinks. No. That's got nothing. That's got nothing to offer you besides like. That is an interesting way to shoot that. The problem with this especially is Gaspar Noah, I think, really wants does want people to think and wants people to do the work. But his movies consistently... What are you giving me? Well, his if movies, I'm doing the work, yeah. what am I getting out his of His movies consistently, once the film ends, I forget about it. He makes, I think, some of the most forgettable movies. He makes forgettable movies that shouldn't be forgettable. Yeah. Like if Lars von Trier... If Lars von Trier is showing someone like cutting their face with people taunting them, you're going to fucking remember it. You're just going to remember it. I rem- I can't get the guy in pie, like, going to drill holes in his head, like, out of my head forever. Even something, even something that's... Darren knows how to show some shit. Even something that's has blasé, not necessarily, I don't want to say blasé, even something that's necessarily as safe and kind of seen often in film as Joe shooting himself in the head during hallucination at the end of You're Neverly really Here. That sticks with you. And that's something that's kind of violent, but just it's such a well-framed shot. And the react and the way they block the actors to not really pay attention to it, you know, and, and, and all the action preceding it gives you something and makes you think something, you know? It, right. And it sits, it sits with you. Just at least that shot alone sits with you. Or even like, a, we'll do another one of the people that we mentioned, like Barry Keough chewing a piece of his arm off, like in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. That's right here in the front of my head. That's right here. Yeah. Anything, everything that I did, just watch Climax, and it's all just kind of floating out of my brain, like, as we're talking about it. And I'm glad we're talking about it, so I don't have to think about it anymore. Because it's not worth my time. And I'm not angry about it. Like, that's the thing that's weird, is that I, I kind of like watching Gaspar Noe movies, because they, when they start out, you're kind of like, oh, this looks alright. Like, if this goes somewhere... I will be happy that I sat and watched this movie, and then it doesn't, and then I feel like I just wasted an hour and a half of my life. I'm kind of—I think I'm kind of done with Gaspar Noe. I gave—I I gave him a lot of leeway because I like *Irreversible*. I first saw it. Maybe it's just a product of the time. You know, I saw that movie sometime early in college. Um, well, that sh- that shit hits hard. Yeah, and like it does. It, like you, when you have Vincent Castle and and Monica Bellucci carrying your film, like even if you're not the best filmmaker. They're going to be able to carry that shit. Well, what? But he is a good filmmaker. So like, yeah, exactly. those things are really like disturbing. And you know, there's a lot of aspects of that, of, you know, the, um, the attack that are just kind of, you know, they're in my brain. Yeah. That, um, those stick, those the, images again, stick the with The chronology, the, the gimmick works there in the sense that these things just kind of, uh, you know, his statement that these things just kind of happen and it's almost makes it seem like you just kind of have to go on with your life. Um, you know, no one cares. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, the world doesn't care. God doesn't care. You got attacked in a subway. And, like, you know, you move through your life more. And the idea that it's reversed, it's like a reverse day, almost doesn't matter because that's not really what he's saying. You yeah, know what I mean? No, exactly. And that's, and that gave him a lot of leeway with that. And then after Enter the Void, which stinks, and not because it's long, but because it's not doing anything. And after Love, which literally is not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And after this, it's just like, no, you have 
like like you said, you have that one really great first project, you know, or first major project that really got his name out there. And if you keep just kind of spinning your wheels after that, you're not worth the time. Which is the worst the worst fine the worst thing ever you could say about an artist, I think. Is when I wouldn't even call this necessarily a bad movie. I'd say it's fine. And the worst thing I think you could say about art in that form is just saying it's so utterly forgettable that your reaction to it is just a major shrug. Right, even something like so, like we already mentioned House at Jack Bell. But when Pat, like I mentioned to somebody that I saw House at Jack Bell, they're like, "Oh, you did?" And they're like, "Oh, so is it worth seeing?" And I'd be like, "I don't, I don't really. It's hard to say whether or not you think this is going to be worth seeing." Um, but if you can do it, it's worth it's worth a viewing. You know what yeah. I mean? If you can handle it, it's worth a viewing. If someone asked me if this is worth seeing, I would say no. Unless you really like this form of dancing. But it's And then watch the first just, yeah, 20 just watch minutes. the first twenty minutes on which I'm sure will be on YouTube fairly soon and then just turn it off because Or immediately. Or oh, yeah, maybe it's already there. I don't know. Um But the, because the rest of it's not really doesn't hold a candle. No, it's just it's ninety six minutes. On digital film. I don't know, Mario. All right, so that's Climax. Um, we'll be right... And what a disappointing one at that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, my favorite shot of the movie was the last shot. Like of the girl... Because you knew it was over? No, I just thought it was pretty. I thought like the... the you hadn't seen really any blues like that mm. in the whole movie. Like of, of her room and then like the white of her hair and the color of her skin and her shirt. Like worked really well together and then... When she like opened her eye and like the color of the dropper was the same kind of blue and it was, you know how it all washed out and stuff. Yeah, um, that was a really nice um, and effective still moment of film. And maybe I liked it because it was still instead of just kind of jerking around all over the place and ripping its skin off. But um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so we will be right back with two movies that aren't on our list, but are kind of close to being on our lists and they're uh, all from one year yeah they're 2017 when tom was not 74 um let's all say douchebag anyways this this special episode is uh you know kind of every so often every year there are those films that make an impact. Uh, they're critically well loved. Um, they they receive some attention from smaller circuit awards or from um, the Independent Spirit Awards. But then when it comes to the major images of the year or the major features of the year, they kind of fall to the wayside. Mm. Uh, rec- we're recording this the week that Mandy has been officially disqualified from the Oscars. Not that it ever had a chance, but. Mandy, I think, will stand as one of those films that will be forgotten in the annals of time under the weight of what will be the big Oscar films and the big films yeah. of 2018. Well, I think I think one of the things that this episode, you know, is going to illustrate is that people are getting so excited about what this episode's about. I think man. one of the bummer aspects of doing any kind of artistic <clears throat> endeavor is that you had to start it at some point and that you weren't doing it forever. So this would have been a really – these are two movies that me and Mario probably would have wet ourselves over if we were doing this podcast last year. At this no, exact absolutely. same time, we would have had very special episodes dedicated to just one of these movies where we just kind of did 
the thing that we did at the bar in 2017, which was just Tossie's life. Um, I know it's supposed to be based on, like, a sort of event that happened, I guess. At Side Street Cafe in Hamden, Connecticut, eating 50-cent wings. Delicious wings, by the way. Yep. And $3 sea $3 hags. And, like, 20,000 <laughs> barrels of free popcorn that yeah. we received. Um but every year, you know, there's these movies that, that just hit up. He leans into it still being weird, where I think Gaspar Noe thinks it's totally okay for him. ...lists, and uh, to start off, we're doing 2017. Yep, we're going to Two movies that, that we both really love that, you know, had we seen them in a different time or had they really hit us in a different way, they would have made one of our lists. They're, they're also rands. For, for a special for me at least so yeah, I mean, one I of these is an also this is an extension um, of yeah me too <coughs> this is an extension I think of like our episode zero mm. where these are movies that if we you know if we ever finish our lists to infinity are going to show up in the next 20 30 you know movies on the list is that interesting for everybody I don't know yeah the, but it's the, it gives you something and makes you think something you know it, right. and it sits it sits with you just at least that shot alone sits with I don't know where mine was because I didn't go that far back. But the movie that was on my, it would have been my number five, my sixth movie from 2017. But for very specific reasons. Because you have five movies from 2017. Four, and you have my fifth. Okay. Um, So this would have been my number. um, We want to talk about that one first? Yeah. All right, let's talk about some movies. Um, The first movie we're going to talk about is uh, David Lowry's A Ghost Story. When I was little, we used to move all the time. I'd write these notes, and I would fold them up really small, and I would hide them. What'd they say? They were just like things I wanted to remember, so that if I ever wanted to go back, there'd be a piece of me there waiting. Tells the story of a ghost. And how is that ghost presented? He's wearing a sheet. Yeah. With holes a cut nice, out. A really nice sheet. That's a this big... This is a long sheet. That's a sizable sheet. That yeah, a, I figured... It, that's a California king of a sheet. You think so? I, I'd hope it's so. It's a big sheet. Yeah. Yeah. It's it probably a big isn't, sheet. It probably isn't actually a bed sheet. It's probably costume. It's probably literally designed as a costume. I think one of the... I think... <sighs> This is a movie. This movie has an interesting history, I think, for me and Mario, in the sense that it played for a week at uh, the Criterion. Two, uh, two like, weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Um, and we missed it, and it was early in the year. It was what March? No, it came out in July. Um, I thought it was earlier I, than that. No, it came out middle of the year, but the problem was like it came out with no fanfare whatsoever. And by the time me and Tom found out it was in theaters. Because uh, we were not looking every week like we do well, now. it was July, so we yeah. weren't like, you know, chomping at the bit to see a bunch of, you know, see what Criterion's going to offer up this week, you know. Because in the summer, it's still just blockbuster movies and whatever, maybe a couple movies here or there, but um, we missed it. We did. And then it came out on video very quickly. I think it came out on video around early October. Mm-hmm. And I, we both rushed to see it. Yes. Um, it is... The David Lowry's third feature after Indian Body Saints and Pete's Dragon. Um, I guess he made it 
because he was actually going to make the old man and the gun, and then that got delayed. So in between Pete's Dragon and the old man and the gun, he made a ghost story. Casey um, Affleck wasn't doing anything after Manchester by the Sea, I guess. Yeah, and he just you know tied his hair back into a ponytail and just kind of move on with his life. Um, it stars Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. As, Playing C and uh, M. Yep, husband and um, wife. Um, they are having, when the movie opens, a dispute about moving out of the house that they live in. I guess it's in Texas. Um, that never gets resolved because uh, Casey Affleck's character dies in a car accident right outside the house. Um, and then his ghost makes a choice not to walk through a computer-generated box at the hospital when he rises up from the coroner's table. Probably the reason for that is that its intentions are fairly clear yeah. from the beginning. Like, And I think so... Character for eternity. Um, and that's the whole movie. Um, it's on Amazon Prime. You can go watch it now. Go, go watch it. Go watch it, and then you can... You know, pause this and come back, and you can listen to our discussion of it. Um, let's assume you did. Welcome back. This would have been Not my what pie are lists and uh, to start off, we're doing 2017. Yep, we're gonna two movies that that re- both. This I think would have been my number one movie if it was my number one movie. Well, of our Best Picture nominees, was this a Best Picture nominee of yours last year? It would have been, yeah. But did it, you did you do that? It was only me. That did no, that? but it was. I mean, it was one like of my. I, said, I ranked. I had best to, pictures of the year to make this list. My number I had, five. To rank this list, I had to make. I had to make a list of like my 2017 movies because I knew 2017 was a big year for me. There's a bunch of stuff that really like moved me powerfully. Um, Conversely, not a lot moved me. That's interesting. Um, I thought it was a really good year, but... The two things that held this movie back for me, and I think they're interesting places to start, and, you know, but feel free to push it in whatever direction you want in. I think the tone is a little uneven. Um, and there, that's displayed in a couple of, in a couple of scenes that um, I found kind of questionable in regards to what the movie seemed to be trying to do. Um, that, and then the computer-generated box... Mario were my two big problems with the movie, and they're related to each other because I think the computer-generated box um, <laughs> doesn't help the tone. Doesn't help the tone of the movie. Um, I think I know what the computer-generated box is doing. Obviously, it's him choosing to move on to the afterlife. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's and he's in. He doesn't walk through the box. He makes a choice. I think the computer-generated box, in that respect. Um, helps because it's kind of funny when he first gets out of the bed and he turns around and he's got the holes for the eyes and he's yeah, walking. First... It's, it's still a difficult movie to watch because there's no story. Yeah. They're just, I mean, Rooney Mara's character goes and looks at the, looks at the body and then she leaves and it's just a long minute shot of a body laying on a table covered in a sheet there's a lot of lingering shots which is why this movie is fantastic it's one of the reasons i love this movie um seated accomplishing that they're coming to it with ideas it doesn't seem like gasper no had any idea here it's very heavy at this point and what occurred to me when i first saw it i was like this could be kind of funny 
and I think the computer-generated box... It is funny to me. But I think it's also not funny. Because he's making a choice... To, he's making a choice to stay. And as soon as you bring up the concept of choice, it adds a gravity to it. You know what I mean? Because it means that he's passed something up. I We can only assume what that other thing is. Irreversible. People yeah, still yeah. talk about the early visual palette when, you know, the guy's on DMT. You know, given up by the choice that he's made. But it adds gravity. But it also adds a computer-generated box into a movie that has been leaning heavily on atmosphere and its cinematography and its and its score and its the acting of its like two principal actors you know what i mean i mean but later on there's a another very heavy computer generated shot in the future when he goes to the top of the tower but that's awesome Okay. That's a different kind of computer-generated thing, though. You know what I mean? I just, I just don't, I just didn't get such a visceral reaction to. Oh, I was so disappointed in the box. How would you, how would you have done this, in order to show that he's refusing the Passover? I think it's just it works narratively for me to kind of say like, oh, he has the choice of moving on, but he doesn't, and it's maybe not something that needs to be there. Perhaps, yeah, I don't know if it's in that. Um, but it is inhabiting the choice and. It's a quick and easy way of doing it. Well, I think that's one of the things. I think that's an interesting way to put it. And I think what I would argue is that someone who's going to watch David Lowry had to know what this movie was going to be when he conceived of it. You know what I mean? He couldn't have conceived of it if he didn't know what the movie was going to be. So anyone who's going to watch this movie is going to be aware of certain... I don't know. They're going to be willing to kind of accept various things. You don't need to have like a narrative device placed in the middle of it. Like, oh, he's made a choice and now he's going to move on from here. I don't know if like the idea of a choice very specifically. I know why I think I think I know why he did it. I'm not just not sure the movie needed it. Why do you think he did it? Because of everything I just said. Because he wanted to he wanted to get some he wanted to alleviate some of the humor in seeing a guy walk around in a ghost you know, in a sheet mm. by saying like, well, he's dead. He's making a choice to be this instead of, instead of here. Um, and then the movie gets back on track after that. You get those really malicky scenes, which, you know, David Lowry clearly is a big fan of, you know, those low camera angles as he's walking through the plains, you know, of Texas and, you know, over the hills and, you know, you get these great sun images, um, and the movie slows down to the exact spot that I wanted it, and I was hoping it would stay, like for the entire movie. Um, and then he, then that Mexican family moves into the house, and then he throws all those dishes around, and then I was sad again. Yeah, that because I didn't want him inter. I mean, I I don't want to review a movie that doesn't exist, but. That changed it tone. That changed tonally for me again, in the sense that he, the fact that he can manipulate this stuff and he can interact with these other people, seems contrary to everything that he had just done, you know, for the last twenty minutes, thirty minutes before that. You know what I mean? With, with him just being an observer, um, not being able to reach the note. Right. Exactly. We can the note that that M leaves to that she room and she couldn't find the key, and was crawling around on the floor. 
like looking for it. Like I didn't really didn't really um we understand it. Like we understand what this movie is supposed to be implicitly. Um so we are going to gauge our emotions based on the camera angle and the and the music and the quality of the cinematography. You know what I mean? They didn't have to say so explicitly like he's angry or he's upset. Like at that point we knew you know, David Lowry was doing such a masterful job at that point that we knew how he was going to feel about, you know, this situation just based on how he was shooting it. Like, they didn't, they just didn't need this stuff. It didn't have to be there. Um, and, it, it, and it, because there are so many shifts after that in terms of, like, the future and then how it cycles back on itself, that it doesn't pick up, it doesn't, it didn't, ever reestablish itself for me in the way it did after computer generated box when kneeing a pregnant woman in the guts and then uh the whole troop badgering her to cut her he get created um for a really long period of time um which i which i i loved i don't know my thought on this is you know of leeway because i like irreversible my first thought maybe it's just a product of the time Mm-hmm. Um, and after he dies, you know, his, his abandonment of the aforementioned computer generated boxes is, is that reacceptance of, of the lack of change. Mm-hmm. And while it moves at that very lethargic, but I think so, but that's, we're, I mean, I feel like we're going to just do on most aspects <laughs> of this movie. I missed for this one. Cause it was noted that that six minute long shot of her eating a pie um, matched uh, their personality somewhat, um, or and I'm assuming that was the intention was to kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there isn't that change. You know, he 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 has a curiosity as to her nature and her being and how she will be. Um, you know, they 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 start out in strife, but there's there's definitely a, a true love story between them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and how she moves on it fosters those ideas of change. Mm. Um, and that's to me why it ramps up because for the first 40 minutes of the film, it moves at such a glacial pace. It moves at a pace that, that contemplates, that thinks, that lingers, that some people, you know, some, some like the negative, not negative Mandy has been officially disqualified from the Oscars. Not that it ever had a chance, but that's jarring to the viewer. That is, you know, for you, that was uncomfortable, not uncomfortable and, so, and, yeah. and, and untold that tonally it off. Mm-hmm. But for me, that kind of represents the fact that he made a choice to not have change, but that the forces of the world that he's on, you know, said that he's stuck, that change is going to come no matter what it is. Yeah. It is an inevitability. Uh-huh. And what's interesting is that's immediately followed by one of the more criticized scenes um, of the film is, is that party goer uh, kind of doing oh, the little Oldham. some of the choreography and some of the dance sequences, especially those single cut dance sequences is pretty well done compared to long spiel about, you know, the inevitability of nothing mattering yeah. of it being a heat death sort of universe yeah. um, where all the decisions and all the art and all the ideas have no purpose. And that, 
you don't change anything. Yes, well, if you read the New York Times today about <coughs> like the state of the Arctic, you would also feel like rough. <laughs> the movie ends with an up, uh, like some upside down crane shots in in deep red. You know what I mean? In the sense of, you know, everything cycles back into being. Um, whether it be a big crunch sort of idea or whatnot. But, but, what... the, but then, what I find interesting is is he's still there. He, he's there to the death of the universe and then cycling back to the new universe that comes, yeah. that new world that comes. And so there's that lingering, lingering sense of he is creating a sort of change in himself. Like he's creating a sort of change in the world around him, even though he's mostly an observer. But it still ultimately leads to the same destination, the same ending. He is the one that creates the sound on the piano. Uh-huh. You know, He is the one that, that sets into motion the death. Um, and it is maybe that nihilistic it's for me, I found this interesting cause it's, it's the best representation of nihilism, mm-hmm. um, in the sense of, you, you know, that Nitschke said, if somebody came into you in the night and said, you've lived this life before and live it a thousand times again, would you consider that person an angel or a demon? Mm-hmm. Um, and it is that, that acceptance that, that re- are stuck on a path that we can't change. Um, and that when change happens, it's outside of our ability. Less depraved as the movie goes on? It becomes... Like the incest, I guess, is supposed to be... Yeah. And it's only our acceptance of that, like when he finally can read the note and he finally accepts that he's kind of can't control these things, that he's able to let go. But I'm not sure that... He is trying to very do hard. something, yeah. and when he's he's trying so much to do something, I think if it's if it's anything, it's about how some things do matter, and that things like relationships matter. I mean, I think it's I think this is kind <clears throat> of exemplified in, you know, just one of the most profoundly sad scenes I've ever seen in film. The first time he looks outside the window and sees the ghost across the street. Mm. And the ghost says, I'm waiting for someone. And Casey Affleck's ghost says, who? And the ghost says, I don't remember. Um, there is... And a, eventually saying, I don't think they're going to come. And that's when and the ghost he, Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think in that respect, that is... There's a nihilism in, encased in that idea. But I think in the idea that's that... More, I'd say it's more... As Lars von Schreer is definitely just an emotional mess. We've always talked about how it takes some weeks on end. Sometimes it's shoot a film. I don't think they're going to come. Maybe I can accept like, what is it? Forces. What is it? You know, what does it matter anyway? You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. I'm just, I'm just going to go because I guess there's, there's a difference between accepting that they're not going to come and then saying like, well, they're just, you know, thinking they're not going to come and accepting they're not going to come, or knowing that they're not going to come. <clears throat> And I think the idea that once he gets the opportunity to, once everything cycles back and he gets the opportunity to, he's still interested in reading that note. He's still, they're still, their relationship is such that he's still so heavily invested in it that he's going to go, he's going to go take the opportunity to look at that note again. He wants to see. It transcends the he nature. He wants to know. The, the world, the universe out, around that. Exactly. Um but I think, just think it's a. I, I think David Lowry did something really fascinating, and especially in a uh, a movie climate where this type of movie really kind of shouldn't exist, 
he got an Oscar winner. He got a very bankable movie star to play these two roles, um, you know, to sit on the floor and eat a pie for six minutes and then throw up in a toilet. Um, while all of those DVDs, you can kind of, and you put all of those movies together, you can probably get something that looks ultimately kind of fascinating. And I think one of the reasons I'm kind of, I, I think I'm hard on this movie is because I want to love it so much. You know what I mean? Like it's, this is, this is my like exact type of movie that I'm willing to kind of go out on a super limb for. Um, and if I'm going to be honest with myself about a movie like this, I have to say, well, these things didn't work for me. I'm can't, I can't just ignore like the, 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 you know, these aspects of the movie. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think we talked about it before. I think like the ending, not the the very end, but like you know the when they build that tower and he you know goes up in the you know he goes up on the tower and stuff. Um, instead of I didn't have a problem with the computer generatedness as much as I because I found it like just utterly fascinating that you know this is where it would go that it yeah. would go to this to, to this length and then these extremes. Conversely, when he jumps. And he ends up back where, you know, at the beginning of the house, you know, where it's just kind of that plot of land is being kind of stick mapped out by a, you know, a irreversible and uh, the three hour long enter the void. Mm -hmm. His newest film, Climax, is one of the best shots is, you know, after they get that prairie, um, the pioneer Mm -hmm. family gets killed by the Native Americans. Just like he sits there looking at it, looking at the body Mm -hmm. and cuts instantaneously to the body decomposing you know having decomposed well then i mean and then it's great because it cuts and i didn't feel even it cuts directly to him being in the house you know when him and his and and bruni mara are are you know looking at it again i guess to buy it that's where i'm not sure some of like these you know, these tonal shifts that I mentioned before are really necessary in terms of conveying emotion in the sense that I think his, like, the ghost's robe does a lot of that work for it. Like, the way that it's just kind of piled up around him is, like, visually very sad. I don't... Does that make any sense? No, I... Can that be a sad pile of sheep? There was an essay, and I really should have brought it back up. There was an essay talking about, like, the the lengths they went to make that robe and to mm-hmm. make it flow in the way it did and to like hang in the way it did. And they took a lot of effort to do that. And uh-huh. that's purposeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there, there's a, a lot of body to it, but it's a body done in a way that removes all the kind of like the human elements of, of that, that character and, and makes it so he's grasping for the last fragments of memory I mean, you know that of what he had, right? And that's like you know that the eyes aren't moving. Like you know it implicitly when you're watching. It. You're like, I know they didn't computer generate the eyes to make them they sad didn't or whatever. That shit. But you can you can almost see it. You know what I mean? When he's when you're when he is seeing something, you can almost see the emotion on Casey Affleck's face. Um, it, it's actually almost. The sheet, the ghost is actually more emotive than Casey Affleck would probably even be in this situation. If that's even possible. I don't know. That's just how I perceived it. Um, and it's just, 
I don't know, just kind of unbelievable. But also with the, not without its, not without its flaws. Hmm. Which is probably why it didn't show up on your list, or it's not even Maybe. with with the ten thousand other two thousand seventeen movies. That it's made not list. ten thousand. But it's interesting though because got I Transformers: The Last Night on your list. Yeah, I do. The um, it's number two. Yeah. Um, the other four movies that are on my list from 2017, um, I don't think have any flaws, and their flaws, I, I think, are part of what make them great. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about my number fifty. I'm talking about my number 58 here. So you didn't think Mother had any flaws? No, I think Mother, upon repeat viewings, has no flaws. I think it's... I'll be loose about the term flaws. I don't... Maybe from like a film... No, no, I understand. Whatever standpoint, but for me... For what it does. For what it does, it has no flaws. I mean, even my number five movie, which we're going to talk about when you talk about it, has a big major flaw at the end of the movie. To the point where it just was like, well, I'm all... To the point where I'm just... When I was watching it in theaters, I was just like, well, I can't. I'm all done now. If that movie had ended 10 minutes earlier... Yep. Where would that have shown up on your list? Oh, maybe around where it shows up on your list. Nah. It's, but it's, it just decided it didn't want to do that. I don't know why. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the second film we're going to talk about is was my number two movie of the year. And um, maybe, for me, a more perfect film than the number one. Uh, I think the number one just hits me. Number one is one of those makes me smile movies uh, from nice. 2017, which is, which is an interesting movie to make <laughs> me smile, but there's there's a, a, a masterfulness in its its direction and performances that we'll, we'll talk about this in a year. Uh-huh. Um, it is written and directed by uh, Sight and Sound, frequent contributor and video essayist for the Criterion Collection, and it very much shows in its composition uh, that man being Hoganaga. Koganada? Koganada? I'm doing a face of Mario can't do names. (laughs) And that would be Columbus. There's this belief that if you're not there when a family member dies... Your spirit will roam aimlessly and become a ghost. I saw you at the hospital. Are you from here? Yeah. You like it here? I'm really interested in architecture. I hear this town is quite the mecca. Columbus telling the story of Jin, played by John Cho, who in the past year and a half has shown that he is a really good actor. Um, I saw Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. I thought, oh, this guy's going to be pretty decent. And I saw American Pie. He's a good comedic actor. I didn't expect him to actually be really quite mm. sound in these subtle, quiet performances. Yeah. Um, he is in Columbus, Indiana. Uh, his father has suffered a stroke and is in a coma in the hospital. And as he's outside the hospital at a library, he meets young Casey, um, who has dreamt of being an architect, 
but has stayed at home to take care of her uh, mother, Michelle Forbes, who's a recovering meth addict. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go around Columbus. It's a kind of a travelogue of Columbus, Indiana's uh, famed architecture. It's a, it's known as a, a mecca of that kind of postmodern architecture. And they um, discuss their lives, their dreams, their ambitions in a very slow, wholesome, whole, very wholesome, con- even though it's technically R-rated because they say fuck a couple times. Is uh, it R-rated? I think it's unrated, but oh it would. But I think it's unrated because Coconata would be like, I don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, very slow, contemplative film uh, about yeah, these are desires two... and dreams yeah. and and the struggles therein, um, the expectations of you know take care of your family or of standing in the shadows of of a family. Jin's father being a famed architect of his own right, mm-hmm. and Jin have kind of skewed that to uh, go teach English English in Korea. Uh, translating, uh, translating literature, not mm-hmm. teaching English. And uh, yeah, this this movie, I saw it absolutely blind. Um, I movie pass had just come out uh, earlier that week. I had seen the first movie after waiting weeks for the movie pass. Oh, by by the way, for the people in the future, movie pass was this really <laughs> great idea. Oh, it's coming back. Oh yeah, I'm sure it is. That this uh, <laughs> company that probably was not at all trying to front money or launder money. Actually, no, you wouldn't launder. They weren't laundering money because they lost. No, they all were of just it. losing it. Yeah. Um, great idea of just like you can go see as many movies as you want once a day for nine ninety nine. And you know when I got my card, I was like, I have to see everything. And uh, this was the second film I saw after it. It's also an enjoyable film, mm. not anywhere near my list. Uh, so I saw this blind. I just looked at the title, looked at the reviews, and went to go see it. And it is striking in um, its two lead performances, but mostly in the fact that it is one of the m- most gorgeous films shot I have ever seen. I would, I would say that. And it was, as much as I love Roger Deakins, um, I, I hesitate to consider his uh, work on Blade Runner 2049 uh, Oscar-worthy. And um, Alicia Christian's cinematography on this is just um, masterful. Well, we were, um, we've talked about this before. You know, Deegan's in 2049 was really, it was really just painting pictures. Mm, exactly. um, everything that Christian does in this movie is in service of the metaphor and in service of the growth of these characters, which is kind of amazing because a lot of the cinematography <coughs> relates to buildings. Yeah, and it's a lot of shots that seem so, I don't want to say narratively dull, but seem so narratively obvious in a way but they are composed in such a way and and the actors are blocked in such a way that they add a lot of depth and a lot of a lot of that kind of language to the film um there are two shots in particular one where casey is going home to her mother Mm -hmm. and it's a long kind of shot of her walking down 
an alleyway and mm-hmm. kind of like that that path that she's chosen sort of thing it kind of like more functionally imposes that uh, more importantly though is this nice shot of Jin in his father's hotel room sitting um, in the closet uh, he's kind of sitting on one end in, in the third of the screen and on the other third of the screen uh, the far third is his father's um, jacket I believe yep. it's like uh, a, just, yeah it's like a suit for his jacket yeah and you know that he has his back turned to it. It's it's a long take of, you know, it just it just the camera is static, and it's just representing the divide between him and his father. That you know the narrative speaks of, but this shot alone says it in more ways than the screenplay ever could. Well, that's I mean, and that's really one of the the. Do you like how do you like how when I really like a movie? I do this voice. <laughs> Well, you do like this movie. We've been talking about this movie for like I, a year this, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the great things about the cinematography in this movie um, is that it's all in service of this, you know, the last scene, I think anyway. Uh, or not, we're one of the last scenes where they show, you know, Jin and um, Casey, played by Haley Lou Richardson, are sitting in front of a building... <coughs> You know, so Jin has this notebook that his father wrote, and there's a there's a, a description and like a sketch of a building, and he's not sure which building in 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 Columbus, Indiana, it actually is, and so they're eating some Danish, and not smoking cigarettes for like the first time outside of on the steps of this building, and Jin kind of says to her, you know, oh that sketch that my father drew, I think it's this building, and they just kind of look up, and that's. You know, there's a building with like a big, it almost looks like it comes, it wants to reach a point, and it doesn't. There's like a big space. The, the city, the city hall, I believe, yeah. Is it the city hall? Okay. I believe it's the city There's hall. a big space between these two kind of horizontal columns where they're meeting. Um, and as you watch this movie, and I've seen this movie three times now because it's on Amazon Prime, so I can watch it as many times as I want without any... It's on Amazon Prime now? I think so, yeah. Well, I didn't realize it. I wouldn't. Last time I checked was on Amazon Prime, and I didn't see it. Huh. Hmm. I have to watch it now. This is a, this is a break between us. Hmm. <laughs> um, there's all of these scenes where there is there's a center line between Jin and Casey. It is like you know when they're right before. They have that bridge speech where Jin just kind of tells Casey that, like, oh, you know, you can have, you should do better for yourself, like, blah, 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 which is a stupid speech. It's, 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 it's a stereotypical speech. There's, there's but, a couple on the nose parts um, of this film. You know, there's trees. You know what I mean? They're standing in front of a grove of trees, and there's trees on one side, and each of them are on the other side, and there's just like a space between the two of them. When they are on that bridge, when they're in that covered bridge, there's very obviously it's just it's circumstantial in a sense. There's you know the two lines of the bridge where the tires would go, and they're each standing in one of those, and there's a space between them. And if you look back between them, you see the trees again, and there's just more space. It's just an endless line between two things. Even when they're in like that church, they're standing on either side of like a stairwell in pews. And the line of the stairs just matches up exactly with the line 
like of a crucifix that's back there. There's just always this space. There's always this distance between like everything. Which is shown in the fact that, you know, Jin has eschewed his father's desires for him and, and pursued his own dreams and pursued his own ambitions. Whereas Casey, you know, has these dreams, but she is always remaining in the service of her mother who in by the point that the film makes the, the very obvious, you know, declaration that, you know, her mother's fine. Her mother doesn't really need her care anymore. And it's Casey holding herself back in the same way. Jin has completely relegated any feelings of, um, commitment or, uh, sentimentality for his father as a very cold, rigid relationship to him to the point where he, you know, he doesn't even realize what his father's the building that's that's most kind of most important or kind of seems really central to his father even was mm. in, in this town, um, and and the divide they have is uh, it's it's a duality. You know, they they both are living two very um, different lives that are flawed in very similar ways in the sense that they're both the yin and yang as it were mm. of, of what they should be. And that center line is kind of removed in that last scene where Casey's decided to kind of take the apprenticeship to pursue architecture. Jin's now, you know, seen where his father is talking about his father's died. He's kind of accepted the fact that, you know, there, there was, an emotional gravity to his relationship with his father and, and they remove that center line and they're, they hug, you know, mm-hmm. um, and a thing I love too. It's, it's a very paternal or maybe fraternal hug. Uh, there, there's, there's no romance or suggestion yeah, his, of romance I mean, in there. It, it, part <clears throat> of it is because of the, the height difference, but the, you're right. Like the way it's shot, like his head is just kind of above her head. Um, He's just kind of staring off into the distance. He's not trying to make like a play or anything like that. He's no. just, you know, upright it's, and giving it's, her this person it's that he loves a hug. two people who have, who needed each other and who loved each other in a completely platonic way, but needed the other person's perspective in order to reach the person they should, could become. Mm-hmm. You know, Jin had, had this coldness to him early on and kind of like this, this emotional was emotionally kind of reserved and detached. And Casey was so, um, flustered and, and making excuses for not pursuing what her dreams, you know, underneath this, um, excuse of, of caring for her mother. And, you know, finally these two characters have broken free of those chains and now are, you know, able to break that line, the divide. And that is absolutely how the, you know, the cinematography in this film and how these characters are staged plays so heavily into the narrative. Cause I think the screenplay in general is fine. It's a very typical sort of story. There's nothing being said in the dialogue that is remarkable, but well, from, no, no, go ahead. But Sorry. from a, a essay, sort of point of view from from the visual standpoint um you know that visual narrative is just so absolutely perfect Mm. and there i believe was something i had said in a previous episode where there are certain times where i am so engrossed by a film and so entranced by a film that there comes a moment where i want to see something happen and if it's 
does happen, I lose my mind. <laughs> and it happened in this film. And that is where Jin and Casey are outside the bank. And uh, he asks her, why? No. He asks her, like, why do you love this bank? And she gives, like, this really kind of tourist, uh, like tour, tour guide guys. answer. Yeah, yeah. And he says, no, I really want to know. And right there, there's like a secondary pause, and I'm like, oh man, I really love right now. And this film would know its audience if you didn't hear what she said, but you saw her explaining it. And it does that. Yeah. You never hear why she loves it. You just see her emoting. You see, and Haley Richardson, fucking amazing in this movie. Definitely deserved all the praise she gets. And was me and you now follow her career. Because I'm looking for, I always look forward to something that she's going to be in. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just just emoting her ass off in this quiet scene, while you know John chose just watching her, and that was the moment I was like, this movie trusts its audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times, it it didn't, it doesn't ever, maybe outside that bridge scene, try to hold the hand of the audience. It allows the narrative to speak for itself. Well, here's, I mean, let's here's a fun little activity we can play, based on everything we know about this movie, based on the character's relationship to this modernist architecture and Haley's um, relationship to it specifically. What do you think it is about the bank that she loves so much? Like, what do you think her relationship to this modern modernist architecture is? Is it the, I mean, I have my own feelings of it, but I'm, I'm curious to know like what you think. I don't, I don't know. I've never thought of it. I've I've never considered why to be important. I considered the fact that she had so much to say, and the fact that she said it with such vigor. You know, mm-hmm. you could see her speaking rapidly. You could see her speaking with, with such expression in her eyes to be what matters. Um, it is the moment that I think Jin realizes that she's, you know, holding herself back, and so I, I've never thought about. What she, what it is that compels her? It's what? just the fact that she is so utterly invested in it and so utterly in love with it that you know drives. Yeah, the story. I think, for me personally, I think it relates to kind of the things like you know the center line idea, where she there is even though like there's all this modernist architecture that's like in this city. Um, I think she still perceives herself as kind of like an outsider. And I think there's probably like the volume of of modernist architecture to just like regular city architectures probably, um, you know, hedges towards the regular city architecture more than it does towards like the modernist architecture. And I wonder if these buildings, she kind of sees like a little bit of herself. And each one of these buildings gets closer and closer to being a reflection of her own like self-image and so you know when she tells us about like her favorite building and it's that you know weirdo structure that we only ever see at night it looks like a kind of an office like an office a grid work an office building with like grid work windows and things like that um but it does have another one of those it doesn't have like an overhang on it but that's not together that's not separated it's kind of together where they're parked in front of. I wonder if she like recognizes this as a kind of reconciliation between that duality. You know what I mean? Mm. Where she's both her and Jin are 
actively trying to reject an aspect of themselves. And this is this building for some reason she can see how she doesn't have to reject an aspect of herself that she can kind of reconcile both aspects of herself into like this one thing. Um, I don't know, but I think that's why this, you know, this movie is great is because, because of the cinematography, you can ask all these questions. Like, what is, like, what is this about? Like, what is the significance of this shot to everything else that's happening in the movie? Which is something that you can't ask in something like 2049. Like, what is the significance of this pile of junk? No, you know. To everything else that's happening in this movie. I mean, the thing about 2049 is, and we both really like 2049. Yeah, yeah. Is it's gorgeous to look at, but does not, not necessarily in service of anything. It just, a lot of times, it's just like, look at this really great establishing shot. Um, and that's a fortunate, I always say it's a fortunate that he won that year. Uh, mostly because I think Columbus should have won, but, uh, or should have been more at least recognized. But also just the fact that he's done films in the past like Sicario or even Skyfall which I think he does establish shots in service of the narrative and there's not a lot of that in 2049 mm. it's just what looks good yeah. and which is why me and you don't ever really give a fuck about what the Oscars think is the best cinematography of the year because the best cinematography whoever unless votes they're, unless they're right the people vote voting on best cinematography are almost always voting on what is pretty and not as what is in service of the narrative yeah but sometimes what is pretty is also what's in service of the narrative sometimes <laughs> yeah but I believe those are as Orson Welles would call them, happy accidents. I don't know. Emmanuel Lub- Lub- Lubezki won three times in a row. I don't know if any of those were happy accidents. I think he deserved <laughs> to win all three times. Well, that was Revenant, Gravity, and... And Birdman. I don't know about Gravity. You don't know about Gravity? Yeah. <sighs> I can't remember why I thought should have won that year, but wasn't too happy about I'm making that, this face. But let's, let's not forget that... Uh, Life of Pi one, but that's you know they owed Ang Lee one. Ang Lee didn't get the Oscar for cinematography. He got it for best picture, not for Life of Pi. What did he win? Yeah, he did. Wait, what? No, no, he didn't. Oh, he won best director for Life of Pi. Yeah, yeah. But didn't win best cinematography. It won best cinematography for shooting, fucking. Sometimes you gotta shoot dolphins. Swimming pool. You gotta shoot them. Swimming pool, and then just CGIing shit. Well, that's I mean that's. <clears throat> you know, to bring this back a little bit, that's a really interesting aspect of this movie is that, like, there are literally none of those things. I mean, even in Ghost Story, there's, like, some CGI stuff. That, I mean, I don't know what they would CGI in this movie. Um, <laughs> but... Well, they, you didn't know Rory Culkin's entire performance was CGI. I believe that. Yeah. One, uh, one, one thing that doesn't work in this movie is Rory Culkin. I don't know why he's... It's, it's kind of there to, like, pad out the the moments between Jen and yeah. Casey, but it's like, oh my God, I don't want to care about this guy and I don't need to hear any of his... Well, because he, I mean, what, is it, what does he represent? I mean, he's offering to go over to the, her house and have dinner with um, her mother. Is With her and her mother. Is that, you know, he clearly wants to have a relationship with her and she is clearly, past a certain point in the movie, rejecting the opportunity to have a relationship with him. Is that because she, like, perceives him to be just another like person like from the town who thinks he's better than the place that he is, but is also never going to leave. Um, which, you know, he doesn't have a nice thing to say about anything. I mean, he's not a dick, but he's condescending. Yeah. Um, and she recognizes that that's not what she wants. She wants to be, she's not better than the town, but she also wants to leave the town type of thing. She's gotten what she needs from the town sort of thing. Right. And she's, 
she just has to figure out a way to move on. I mean, to play a, conversely to the gorgeous cinematography and the way that the cinematography was used, I mean, there is some fairly pretentious filmmaking going on here yeah. occasionally. Um, where that cinematography, even though it's Im- he's employing the cinematography, it doesn't really do anything. It, it just, just feels obnoxious. Like some of those library shots where, you know, they have Rory Culkin's character and, and Haley on opposite sides of the book um, bookshelves. Mm-hmm. Just you, and like it, like there's a lot of center distance. There's a lot of distance in the center. It's like, uh, it doesn't really do anything. It just yeah. looks cool. Well, there's in that and like the scene where Jin and um, Parker Posey's character, Eleanor, um, are having a conversation about like what they're going to do about Jin's father on like the banks of that of that river mm-hmm. by that bridge thing. Um, and you just a lot of people standing around and like the, the dialogue is done in voiceover. Um, so it's just yeah, John, all that ADR John Cho, just like emoting into the distance. It's like, that's ah, not, not, you're not, yeah. not doing any work with this. Like this is, you're going too you're going too far. You're going beyond the, the point of what you were trying to make. Um, but still those pale in comparison to, they're just things. moments yeah. and they don't, they don't take away or negate the power of those. It's the reason why this is probably not, it's the reason why it's not your top six. That, um, n- n- no, it's probably not in my top six because. Where would this, where would this be in your, your 2017? I don't know. Maybe. Top 10? Maybe not top 10. It just seems light to me. I think that's why I liked it so much. That's why I really enjoyed it so much was it was so light. You needed. There wasn't a lot of lightness in 2017. No, but there was... I wanted there to be more... I wanted there to be more gravity. I'm looking for more gravity now, I think, in my movies. See, I, I just... I felt like there was in a the lot light- of gravity in film in in the past several years. So it was, it, was, it was nice seeing a movie that was for adults, that was telling an adult subject matter, that was still basically an R-rated film... That did it. That could be light. You know, what, that I, didn't have to be light in the sense of being a comedy. It's still very much a straightforward drama. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I mean, my favorite movie this year, I thought, was found a way to be light and like crazy heavy simultaneously. Mandy. <laughs> no, man. I love Mandy though. Mandy's going to be my top ten for this year for sure. Um, but my top ten. Oh, for- sorry, the mule. <laughs> no, that yeah, I forgot. Is, you got a secret. That's coming screen. out next week in New Haven, though. Oh, we're gonna watch it. No, we're not times. watching it. We're watching um, the mule all the time. Is that it? No, wait. What movie you were gonna say? You said the movie, your favorite movie, was late for this year. Oh no, my favorite movie, two thousand seventeen, which oh. we're gonna talk about later. No, you're saying something from this year. Something was late. One of your favorite movies of this year was late. Oh, I don't. I don't think I was talking about two thousand seventeen. Oh, you said one of my favorite movies from this year. Oh, I, I meant this year, like the year we're talking about. <sighs> Was I, I? I was light and like crazy heavy, and because of that, just was a thrilling movie watching experience for me. And that, and that's the thing. I was surprised by that movie. I don't know if I was surprised by this movie. I feel like I understood this movie. I feel like I understood from the beginning of this movie like what it was aiming to do, and the fact that it did it really, really well was nice. See that's the thing, I, but it I, didn't like it didn't like kick my ass. Or <clears throat> like that. Well, that's why I say like this. This falls in that, that it makes me smile. Warm blanket films. It's it just is so comforting. Mm. 
It feels like a movie that when I get sick, like if I ever get really sick, like I get a really bad fever, I might put Columbus on because it makes me just feel nice. Oh, let's hope hope you get a fever then. It'd be nice for you. <laughs> what a what a weird way to end this episode. I hope you get all the Oregon Trail diseases because I think they all include fever. Yeah, dysentery fever, dysentery fever. Typhoid has fever, right? Typhoid. I think it is. Yeah, just typhoid fever. There you go. That's all and you then need. more dysentery. Yeah. You know where you can look up dysentery? On Wikipedia. And while you're on Wikipedia, you can then leave Wikipedia and go to <laughs> twitter.com slash film pivotal. See us talk something. I mean, if you ask us a question about dysentery, we might answer it. We might. We're not going to diagnose if you have dysentery. No, but we have played Oregon Trail, and we know that most dysentery can be fixed Oregon. by killing Oregon. an ox. Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail. Oregon. The Oregon Trail. The Nevada. <laughs> the O hyphen Regon Trail. <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> oh, man. Wyoming. Jeez. Um, you can also look at our Instagram. Instagram.com slash pivotal film. Mario will post a map. Yeah. With the critic pronunciations <laughs> of these places' names. I can't pronounce the names of any foreign actor director but you can at least name the states yeah that's pretty good that's probably more valuable um you can go if you have a comment on our state pronunciations you can send us an email to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com whenever this episode goes up we will post it to uh, pivotalfilm.com where you can also see a list of the beers we drank on our you know episodes proper and the films we've talked about on our episodes proper and uh links we just to we drank a lot subscribe. of coffee and water on this one yeah we did we did um yeah until next whenever we talk to you again hopefully you've seen a movie you drank a beer we'll talk to you next week